Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Camping, hunting, hiking all things that are synonymous with the woods. The isolated cabin in the woods brings up images of horror movie staples such as Friday the 13th. The woods are a dark, quiet, peaceful and mysterious place where you can relax and forget about your problems. Or can you? What is that lurking behind the tree? And what is that sound? The woods can also be a haunting setting because you never know what is beyond what you can see. And that is exactly what can get you mysteriously listed. Number 10. Jeffrey Zawalski 23-year-old Jeffrey Zawalski was a student at Wayne State University in Michigan. During his semester break from classes, Jeffrey travelled to Hawaii to explore the wilderness. On March 31, 1993, while hiking in the Walalo Valley on the island of Molokai, he flagged down a helicopter from the Department of Land and Natural Resources. He told the pilot that his feet were severely blistered and he wanted a ride back to the nearby village. The pilot refused to fly him out of the area because, in his opinion, it was not a life-threatening situation. The pilot then told Jeffrey that he could charter a plane for $650, but this was something that Jeffrey could not afford, and he turned down the offer. Feeling somewhat sorry for his situation, The pilot did offer to help him by bringing back his 60-pound backpack to the service yard on Molokai, where he could pick it up once he returned. However, after 41 days, his backpack still remained in the yard, and Jeffrey Zawalski was reported to be a missing person. Local police and park rangers conducted a thorough search of the area, as well as the United States Marines, who sent 38 men to the area for nearly a week of searching. The family spoke to the FBI and other police agencies in Hawaii, but there have not been any confirmed reports of Jeffrey's whereabouts. On July 28 of 2001, more than eight years after Jeffrey disappeared, a woman reported that she believed she spotted Jeffrey begging for money near a homeless shelter in Honolulu. She described him as having heavy facial scarring, that he had a limp, and that his speech was slurred. Investigators searched for the man she described, but they could not locate him, and no one at the homeless shelter recognised the man from the police sketch. Without any solid leads, Jeffrey's case remains unsolved, and to the recording of this episode, his father continues to search for him.
Number 9. Matthew Green Matthew Green was reported missing on July 29 of 2013. He had plans to go hiking in the Mammoth Lakes region in California. Prior to his disappearance, he happened upon some car trouble and he stayed behind in the campground with plans to meet up with some friends down the line. The last time he had contact with anyone was July 16, when he called his parents in a car repair shop. His friends only realised he was missing when he failed to meet up with them as planned. They discovered that his car had been repaired, but he never picked it up and he had not returned to the campground for over a week. Back at the campsite, some of his gear was discovered to be missing and pages were torn out of his guidebook. This led to speculation that he might have headed in that direction for a hike. Most people assumed that he had died from a fall while climbing, but Matthew's friends disagree. They argue that Matthew was highly experienced and careful when in the mountains. Another theory is that he might have been abducted by someone when he tried to get a ride to a remote area to hike. In spite of the extensive national media attention that his case has received, and a thorough search of the area, Matthew Green has never been found. Number 8 the Bowles family. On the morning of Monday, August 16, 1965, in Fountain Valley, California, Hester Bowles was getting a sickening feeling in her stomach. On Friday, her 41-year-old son, James Bowles, his 37-year-old wife, Darlene, and their children, 13-year-old Bobby and 12-year-old Tommy, they went to stay at their newly constructed cabin. When they were to return on the Sunday, they were meant to give her a call to let her know that they had returned safely. Hester called James's place of work, only to be told that he didn't come into work that day. Hester got in touch with Darlene's family. Maybe they had heard from the family, but they hadn't either. They were getting panicked too because... They were sure that Darlene would have called them when the family returned to the cabin on the Sunday. The Bowles family had bought the land the cabin was built on 10 years earlier, but construction of the cabin had just been completed the weekend before. The family were excited about their new holiday home, and this would be the first time the family would be staying in the cabin. Darlene's family was sure that she would have contacted them as soon as they got back to tell them about it. There was no phone at the cabin, so the family couldn't call to check on them. Darlene's brother phoned the sheriff's department, and they said they would radio the Crestline substation. The problem the authorities were faced with was they had a large area to cover, and there were not many deputies, so it was going to take them a while to go check on the cabin. Hours went by, and Darlene's brother became more and more frustrated, so he and one of his employees drove 75 miles to Crestline to check on the family. 
They arrived at the two-bedroom cabin at around 4.15 in the afternoon and the family's car was not there. When Darlene's brother looked into the living room window, he made a horrifying discovery. On the couch was the family's dog. It was dead and covered in blood. Darlene's brother tried the front door and it was unlocked. When he opened the door, he was hit by a powerful stench. He ventured into the house and in the master bedroom, he discovered the body of James and 13-year-old Bobby on the floor beside the bed. In the closet was the body of Darlene. He ran from the cabin, got into his car and drove directly to the sheriff's department. Detectives and sheriff deputies arrived at the cabin within the hour. By all accounts, the bedroom was a horrific crime scene. James was lying on his back on the floor and Bobby was in a sitting position with his back against the wall. Darlene was in the closet and behind her body was that of 12-year-old Tommy. The positions of their bodies indicated to investigators that Darlene was probably trying to hide or maybe protect her youngest son. Investigators found over 35 22 caliber casings throughout the cabin. Each member of the family had been shot multiple times. The gun has never been found, but forensic testing determined it was a 22 caliber auto-loading pistol or a rifle. The family's car was found abandoned the next day, not far from the cabin. The bowls were last seen alive on Saturday evening. A woman in Crestline was giving out rat poison on behalf of the local police. She says the Bowles family stopped by her house on the Saturday evening. She said they told her they were in a hurry because they were meeting someone at 8pm but didn't say who. There were also several neighbours who thought they saw a second car at the Bowles cabin on Saturday night. Other neighbours remember hearing a barking dog and a woman screaming but no one heard the 35-plus gunshots. The family car was still in the driveway at 6.30 on Sunday morning, but it was gone later that day. The home invasion was a brutal massacre, and it seemed motiveless. There were several suspects over the years. The most promising suspect came to the attention of the police in December of 1966 because of a beat-on-the-lookout report from the police in Mobile, Alabama. They were looking for a man named George Robert Stewart, who was 22 years old at the time. Stewart was already wanted for the stabbing death of a pair of brothers, 9-year-old Michael and 13-year-old Randall Evans. Stewart had been committed to mental institutions several times throughout his life and he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. At the time of the Bowles murders, he was working at a church camp in Twin Peaks, which was about two miles away from the Bowles' cabin. On the weekend of the murders, the camp was cancelled and no one from the church was at the campgrounds. This would have given Stuart the freedom to do whatever he wanted around the camp. Stuart was finally arrested in April of 1967 in Texas. While in custody, he admitted to killing one of the Evans brothers, but denied killing the Bowles family and was adamant that he would never kill a dog. He was given a polygraph test and he was asked about the Bowles family murders. 
The test results showed he was being deceptive in regards to killing a person. The problem the tester had was he couldn't tell if he was reacting to the murder of the Evans brothers or the murders of the Bowles family or possibly another homicide altogether. The police also found a boot print in blood at the cabin and it was similar to Stuart's boot but the tread pattern didn't match. In the end, Stuart wasn't charged with the murders of the Bowles family or the murders of the Evans brothers. Stuart had an airtight alibi at the time of the Evans brothers' murders. He was in New Orleans at the time. He had a work stop and there were witnesses that could back up his alibi. Instead, he was convicted of child molestation and child abuse in October 1993 in Illinois. He was eligible for parole in 2014 and he's currently living in Chicago. So while Stuart had a history of sexual abuse towards children, he's never been convicted of any murders. So is it likely that he would have broken into a random family's cabin, forced them into the bedroom, and then shoot them multiple times? Some of the investigators thought that the overkill could have stemmed from something personal. Something else that could be considered is that James told some locals in Crestline that he and his wife were thinking about retiring and they were going to make the cabin their permanent residence. The couple made over $10,000 a year, which is about $80,000 in 2018 money. So they were comfortable, but certainly not wealthy. Yet they owned two fairly new cars, a cabin in the woods, a condo, plus three other properties in Los Angeles. On the night of the murders, the family were supposed to meet someone at their cabin at 8 o'clock. Was that person their killer? Was the killer somehow connected to their money? Or were the Bowles family just excellent investors? Unfortunately, these questions may never be answered, and the brutal slaying of the Bowles family may never be solved. Number 7. Debbie Blair The disappearance of 65-year-old Debbie Blair occurred on September 29, 2016. She was in the Cypress Preventional Park in British Columbia with her regular hiking group ready for a day of hiking. One of the members would later claim that Debbie was travelling with a faster group of hikers, but later in the day she hurt her knee and she went back to find the slower group to continue the journey. When the group reached the top of the trail, Debbie was nowhere to be found, and she was immediately reported missing. The search began that evening and continued until 1.30 in the morning. 50 volunteers and emergency service workers took part in the search, as well as police search dogs and multiple helicopters equipped with thermal imaging technology. Although there have been some unusual human tracks found, they were unable to identify if they were actually Debbie's. The rescue team grew more concerned since temperatures fell to 3 degrees Celsius. The group of hikers stated that Debbie was not prepared to spend the night outdoors and she had left her coat and food in the lodge. Despite the five days of extensive air and ground searches, the rescue team found no trace of Debbie. The Vancouver Police Department informed the public they had stopped the active search unless they receive any new information. 
There are several theories that have been proposed since her disappearance. One theory is that she was suffering from undiagnosed Alzheimer's and had slipped away from the group. Another theory is that she stepped off the path to switch clothes and lost track of the group she was hiking with. Today, there has been an outpouring of support on social media among people who knew Debbie, and they remain hopeful that she'll be found safe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Number six, the Lava Lake Murders. In the fall of 1924, 50-year-old Edward Nichols, 35-year-old Roy Wilson and 25-year-old Dewey Morris moved into the log cabin near Little Lava Lake in Oregon. The cabin was owned by a local logging contractor and the three men had planned to do some trapping throughout the winter. Around Christmas, Edward Nichols travelled to the nearby city of Bend and sold some furs. On January 15, 1925, a man travelling on snowshoes stopped off at the cabin and he spent the night. He said that the three men were in good spirits and they were having a successful winter season. In the spring of 1925, the families of the men became concerned because no one had seen them for several months. Three months later, on April 13th, a group of people travelled to the cabin to check on the men. They immediately noticed that something was wrong. They noticed that the men's traps had not been tended to for quite some time. Inside the cabin, they found a table set for dinner and burnt food on the stove. The owner of the cabin had five valuable foxes, which he kept in an enclosure near the cabin. As payment for staying in the cabin, the men were supposed to feed the foxes. When the search party got back to the enclosure, they found the doors open and the foxes were gone. The only thing they found in the fox enclosure was a hammer that was covered in blood. The men's sled was also missing. At this point, the searchers decided to contact the sheriff. The following day, the sheriff's investigators found the missing sled. It was less than half a mile from the cabin on the shore of Big Lava Lake. When the sled was examined, it was found to have a large blood stain on one of the ends. They also found a depressed path in the snow that led out to the lake. The path came to an end where someone had cut a hole in the ice earlier in the winter and that had frozen over. Upon further searching, they found blood on a stone near the shore along with some human hair and a human tooth. Later that evening, the searchers went to the lake to catch some fish for dinner. When they arrived at the lake, they were surprised to see that much of the ice had melted. The thawing exposed three bodies that were all floating on the surface of the lake. The men had all been shot at close range with a shotgun, a pistol, 
and they were also bludgeoned with a blunt instrument that was thought to be the hammer found in the fox enclosure. The police had only one suspect in the case, a man named Charles Kimsley. Kimsley also went by the name of Lee Collins. According to the owner of the cabin, Kimsley had spent the winter before the murders trapping with Nichols. They got into a fight when Nichols accused Kimsley of stealing a wallet. Kimsley threatened that one day he would return to the cabin to kill Nichols. The police were also aware of Kimsley. He had a long criminal history. He'd been arrested in 1923 for attempted murder. He had hired a man named W.O. Harrison to drive him from Portland to Idaho. Along the way, Kimsley pulled Harrison off the stagecoach, punched him and tied him up. Kimsley then threw Harrison down a well and continued on his journey alone in the man's stagecoach. Harrison survived the attack and Kimsley was arrested. He avoided prosecution because he disappeared before the trial. Kimsley was wanted for questioning for the Lava Lake murders, but it would be nine years before he was found. Kimsley was arrested in Montana and without even being asked about it, he denied committing the murders. Now, there is no evidence linking Kimsley to the murders and he had a passable alibi. He says he was in Colorado at the time of the murders. As a result, he was never charged with the murders of the three men. Kimsley was also wanted in Utah for the murder that was similar to the assault he committed on W.O. Harrison. The state of Oregon chose not to extradite him and instead he was charged with the attempted murder of Harrison. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Today, the Lava Lake murders is considered officially unsolved. Number 5. Christopher Allen Temple On April 27, 1990, just a week before his high school graduation, 17-year-old Christopher Allen Temple went camping with four of his friends in Bath Township in Michigan. On that day, he went to the Riverfront Park to celebrate Earth Day with another group of people. At approximately 9pm, he went with his friends to the remote campground in the Rose Lake Recreational Park. They set up their tents and made a campfire. Christopher then walked into the surrounding woods and was never heard from again. He wouldn't be reported missing until the following morning when his friends didn't find him sleeping in his tent. After months of extensive searches of the area, there were no clues as to where he had gone or what had happened to him. All of Christopher's belongings were still in the tent and he was last seen wearing a black t-shirt and ripped jeans. His parents made flyers using his yearbook photo and they were plastered all over town. But unfortunately, no witnesses came forward with any information on Christopher's whereabouts. Initially, investigators believed that Christopher had run away, but 18 months after he was last seen, one of his sneakers was found 300 yards south of the campsite in an area that had already been searched. The sneaker appeared to be very weathered as if they'd been out in the elements for a very long time. 
On this evidence alone, it changed the investigator's line of thinking from running away to possible homicide. Prior to his disappearance, Christopher was a high-performing student. He had good grades and had perfect attendance. However, after his disappearance, his friends would later report to police that Christopher sold drugs to fellow students during his senior year in high school. His friends alleged that he had a history of ripping off his buyers. He would give them smaller amounts than what they paid for. This developed a theory that an angry customer may have gotten their revenge on Christopher and killed him. The area where he was last seen is incredibly swampy, and it would be easy to hide a body. And except for the sneaker that was found more than a year later, no further evidence was discovered to find closure for Christopher's family. Number 4. The Cowdens The Cowden family of White City, Oregon, consisted of 26-year-old Richard Cowden, his 22-year-old wife Belinda, and their children, 5-year-old David and 5-month-old Melissa. For the Labor Day weekend in 1974, the family was camping about 30 miles away from their home in Applegate Valley, Oregon. At around 9pm on September 1st, Richard and David drove to the nearby store to buy some milk. This would be the last time anyone saw any of the Cowdens alive. When they didn't return home from their camping trip, concerned family and friends reported them missing to the local police. The police went to their campsite and found it undisturbed. Belinda's purse and Richard's wallet was there in plain sight but the family was nowhere to be found. An extensive search of the area was conducted and news of the disappearance of an entire family attracted headlines around the country. The police would interview over 150 people. Some of the suspects considered by police included members of a motorcycle gang who were camping a few miles away. Another witness said they saw a black man in overalls walking near the campsite on the day the family disappeared. Eight months later, the Cowden family was found murdered, only seven miles from their campsite. The remains of Belinda and her two babies were jammed inside a small cave. They had all been shot with a twenty-two calibre rifle. About 50 miles away from the cave was Richard's body. His remains were tied to a tree. Due to the state of decomposition, the medical examiner could not determine his cause of death. However, the police believe that Richard was killed where he was found, tied to a tree and helpless to save his family. He was most likely left out of the cave because his body would have been too big to fit into it. By the time the bodies were found, the police were able to eliminate every suspect, except for one. This was 27-year-old Dwayne Lee Little. Little had a startling history of violence dating back to when he was only 15 years old. On November 2, 1964, Aurea Faye Phipps went horseback riding near Cedar Flat in Oregon. At some point, she encountered Little, 
he attacked her and struck her so hard in the head that he fractured her skull. He also slashed her throat and stabbed her multiple times. After she was dead, Little then raped her. He was arrested, but since he was only 15, he could not be charged with anything. Angrily baffling, I know, but the state of Oregon waited two months until he turned 16, and only then would he be charged with the murder. In February 1966, Little, who was now 17, was sentenced to life imprisonment, but he was able to apply for parole after serving only 10 years. Because of time served before his conviction, he was able to apply for parole in 1974, which he was granted. Where the Cowdens were murdered, Little had only just been paroled and living with his parents, 18 miles away from the Cowdens' campsite. Little would later claim he was in California at the time of the murders, but no one was able to confirm this to be true. However, some people do believe they saw him near the campsite and the crime scene. One couple thought they saw Little's pickup truck with a group of people in it. They also saw a dog, who would later be determined to be the Cowden's dog, running along after the pickup truck. Another person saw Little filling up his pickup truck at the gas station not far from where the bodies were found on the afternoon of the day the Cowdens would have been murdered. Finally, although the murder weapon was never found, Little owned a 22 calibre rifle that was missing. Little was given the choice of taking a polygraph test about the murders of the Cowdens or to simply go back to jail for violating his parole for carrying a concealed weapon. He chose not to take the polygraph test and he spent a year in prison. In 1980, Little kidnapped, raped and stabbed a pregnant woman in the city of Tigard, Oregon, where she was hitchhiking. Thankfully, she survived and Little was given a life sentence. In his file, it was recommended that he should never be released. Little has always denied being responsible for the Cowden murders and this crime officially remains unsolved. Number 3. The Magistrari Murders On January 14, 1989, 14-year-old Francesco Valentiero got leave from his reformatory school in Velocina, Spain. The plan was for he and his girlfriend, 15-year-old Rosario Gattay, and her friend, 15-year-old Pilar Barriga, to go camping for the weekend. They had a tent and they took the bus to the Kadu Mountains, which is about 25 miles away from where they lived. Now, the three teens had a history of drug use, abusing alcohol, and getting into trouble with the law. Six days after they left to go camping, a farmer in the nearby small town went to get a tool from his shed on the property. He was surprised to find the lock on his door broken. Inside, he found a teenage girl lying on a cot. He initially thought she was sleeping, so he touched her foot. He was planning on shaking her and waking her up. He was startled when he realised how cold it was, and he immediately called for the Civil Guard. The Civil Guard is Spain's national police force. 
So the civil guard arrived on the scene, and besides the broken lock, they found no evidence of foul play. This girl was determined to be Rosario Gatte. The following day, an autopsy was performed, and the medical examiner determined that she had died from a cardiac arrest. This was most likely triggered by a drug overdose. Rosario's pants were undone and there were traces of semen. The authorities theorised that Rosario and her friends had broken into the shed to escape from the cold winter. Here is where Rosario took an untraceable drug and she overdosed. Francisco and Pilar then ran out of the shed to either look for help or to flee the scene. The civil guard launched a search to look for them. Three months after Rosario's death, a woman found an amputated foot in a waste container in Valencia. The authorities speculated that it belonged to either Francesco or Pilar. However, while this was being forensically tested, Francisco's body was found on a property neighbouring the farm, only a mile from where Rosario was discovered. He was lying face down and his body was badly decomposed. His autopsy was inconclusive, but it was assumed that he took the same untraceable drug as Rosario. It is reported on some sites that Francesco was also badly beaten and shot, however it's not clear whether this was just a rumour. It is also reported on some sites that Francisco's body might have appeared after the civil guard search, which I would assume to be the case, otherwise it would be highly alarming if they missed it during the initial search. Now there are two major problems with the civil guard's theory that the teens just happened upon the shed and overdosed. The first is that the shed where Rosario's body was found was more than an hour's drive from where they were planning to camp and in the opposite direction of where they lived. Also the shed was fairly remote and it was uphill from where they were dropped off it seems unlikely that they found the shed on their own. The second problem was that the toxicology report did not find any trace of drugs in their system. If drugs didn't cause them to go into cardiac arrest, then what did? At the crime scene, the civil guard found evidence of an unidentified person being present and that a vehicle had been there recently. As to who that unidentified person could be is still unknown to this day. This case became more mysterious about five months later, when on May 26 of 1989, the body of Pilar was found beside a river less than six miles away from the shed by a group of schoolchildren. Pilar's face had been heavily disfigured and her right hand and left foot were cut off with what was believed to be a chainsaw. However, despite the body's DNA matching Pilar's sister, her family refused to accept that the body was hers. They pointed out that the body had a scar which Pilar didn't have, and they insisted that she is still a missing person. This case continues to baffle the civil guard, as they have never been able to uncover any big leads or suspects. Some armchair sleuths have suggested the connection with the Alcasta murders, which was an incident in 1992 where three teenage girls were brutally raped and murdered near Valencia. While the murderers were officially caught in this case, one of the men escaped and has never been apprehended. 
That investigation was filled with a countless number of problems and unanswered questions. And there are a bunch of conspiracy theories that claim the girls were killed for a snuff film or a satanic ritual. Number 2. Teresa Ann Beer On June 1st of 1987, 16-year-old Teresa Ann Beer went with 43-year-old Russell Welch to go for a camping trip. The two were headed to the Chateau Park in California in search of Bigfoot. Russell considered himself to be a Bigfoot expert and he claimed to have had contact with the mythical creature in the past and he wanted to share this experience with the teenager. During their trip, Teresa mysteriously vanished and was never seen again. When Russell returned back alone, he was questioned by the local police. He initially claimed that Teresa ran away from him. A search of the area where the two camped was immediately ordered by the police, but they were not able to find anything related to the case. A few days later, Russell changed his story. He alleged that Teresa was forcibly taken by Bigfoot. Now, obviously, the police did not believe his story. So he was later charged with the abduction and was scheduled to stand trial. However, the police abruptly dropped all charges and released him just three days before the court proceedings were about to begin. The police realised that They had no physical evidence upon which to build a case and they were afraid that they were destined to lose the jury trial. If that were to happen, Russell would be cleared and could not be later charged. Even if Teresa's remains were later located or actual physical evidence was found, the double jeopardy laws would still stand. It's been 30 years since Teresa was last seen and no trace of her has ever been found. Number 1. Jared Negrette 12-year-old Jared Negrette was on a camping trip with his Boy Scout group in the San Benito National Forest. This would be Jared's first overnight camping trip with the group and they were planning to hike to the top of Mount San Garago. While hiking on the way to the top, Jared became tired and a scout leader told him to wait and that he could rejoin the group on the way back down the mountain. However, when the scout group returned to collect him, Jared was nowhere to be found. On the first week of the search, over 200 rescue members, including 100 local volunteers, helped look for Jared. Helicopters equipped with infrared scanners were also deployed, but after scouring through the vast area, they weren't able to find any trace of him. Even though they didn't find him in the first week, investigators were optimistic that he would be found safe. They were hoping because there was sufficient water on the mountain and the temperatures were warm enough that he would be able to survive for several days. On the second week of the search, Jared's camera was found in the woods and it contained 12 undeveloped photographs. These were developed 
and turned out to be mostly landscape shots that were taken before he disappeared. But the last photo was a self-portrait which Jared had taken of himself. If you search for this photo online, it may leave you feeling a little uneasy. It only captures his eyes and his nose. It is the belief of online commenters that Jared was looking scared in these photos and that the mysterious creepy photo was taken after he went missing. The self-portrait of Jared Negrette was the last existing trace of him. It's been theorised that he was abducted by an unknown assailant. The area where the boys hiked was known to be a hub for drug activity, so it is possible that he was met with foul play. Another theory suggested that he may have fallen off one of the many cliffs in the area and that his body was savaged by animals. However, the search efforts didn't find any blood in the surrounding area, so it is unclear what exactly happened to him. What would you like to see next mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Mysteriously Listed. We are also on Twitter at Mysterious List. To find out what inspired us this episode, or our favourite podcast if you wish to learn more about the cases we discussed today, and also to listen to each of our episodes, please visit mysteriouslylisted.com. If you like what you heard today, we would love your support by sharing on your social media of choice. You can also help the show if you could rate, review or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Audio production, research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Our music is by Mayu. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.